The Start On Demand. On demand. Winnipeg's firefighters say they're being sent out to more and more violent calls and they are just not equipped. It's not just firefighters being put in harm's way. Winnipeg's paramedics are seeing an increased amount of violence being hurled at them. So we'll speak to their union about how bad it's getting. We're continuing to mark the 20th anniversary of the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg. Today, we spoke to one half of the Canadian gold medal champion men's beach volleyball team, Conrad Leineman. And Canadians spend more money on wedding gifts than any other gift-giving occasion. How much do you spend on wedding gifts or presentation? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, July 24th podcast for The Start. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones, Mackling and McGarry, McNabb back in August. Greg, how much sleep did you get? Three hours. What's that ringing in my ears? (laughs) Holy crow. It was loud. And remind us where you went last night? (laughs) Burton Cummings Theatre last night went to see uh, Slash, Miles Kennedy, and the Conspirators uh, to hear about three songs that I knew, uh, but terrific performance, but it was ultra loud, blown away by the theatre. I have never been in that upper balcony, and they still have the old church pews up there. Really? And it's so steep, but fantastic. I think that the sound is usually a little bit better than there. That building built in on the early 1900s was not designed for rock and roll. That's a stadium show that they put inside of that theater last night, Uh, but it was terrific. Really neat to see a band that has been playing in front of 20, 30, 40, 50,000 and more fans at festivals all across the world over the last several months to see them in an intimate setting like that. It it was fantastic, but I'm going to reiterate what I said to you. In the newsroom this morning, if I speak even louder than I normally do this morning, I apologize in advance because my ears are literally ringing. And yesterday afternoon, Kathy Kennedy and for Hal Anderson had Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, which consists of Winnipeg's own Brent Fitz, who is a world-renowned drummer, and Todd Kearns, Canadian musician. He was, you might know him from the age of electric. Where is he from? He's from Saskatchewan. Oh, originally. But you still like him. I do. I love him. Uh, yeah. He's uh, one of my favorite people. And uh, last night was Slash's birthday. So about 1,400 people singing happy birthday to Slash last night. It was kind of cool. That is really cool. So good for you for going, for toughing it out. Uh, when it comes to weeknight festivities, I usually, uh, I'm always sort of reluctant to do it. I confess, I, I took not one, but two naps yesterday. Two one naps? In, one in the afternoon and then one just before supper and didn't leave the house. Kathy told me what time the band was going on last night. She said they're going on at 8.25, so didn't leave the house until after 7 to time it so that I didn't have to be there any longer really than I needed to be and, and rested a little bit, and it worked out more than fine. And then, she, yeah, so she said that they came, they were coming on at 825, and they did indeed come on at 825. I think it was 823. 
Wow. When they came on. So it was it was absolutely perfect. Great right, night. Right on time, just like a CJOB sportscast. Before I forget to ask you, uh, 25 after the hour, before I forget to ask you, did you notice gas prices yesterday? Because I noticed they were all over the map yesterday. Some places were $1.15. Yes. And then some were $1.09. I saw $1.09 this morning. I needed gas last night on my way out and paid $1.15 on Henderson Highway. And so the, there's a cluster of gas stations up around McLeod it is mm-hmm. and they were all at a 105.9 and then the couple five or pardon me 115.9 okay thank you and then when I got to Portage Avenue a couple of the two 24-hour gas stations on Portage Avenue near Sherbrooke and then the other one near Home Street they were at 109.6 okay so I don't know let us know what you're seeing in terms of gas prices. Text us at 204-780-6868. In our next half hour, we're going to have a conversation. And I meant to bring this up yesterday. completely forgot. I was driving into work, going up Portage Avenue, and I got stopped at the light in front of Portage Place. And I turned to my right, and I think to myself, they tore down the bus shelter. <laughs> yes. So that's great. So we'll have that conversation coming up soon. What am I, what What is this music I'm hearing? Are you playing that, Greg? Is Will, Will? What are you playing right now, Will? I thought Greg would maybe be able to guess this. I can hear it. I Turn it up a little bit. Yeah, because I can't hear anything. <laughs> there we go. Yep. Is this Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators? It is. With Slash? World on Fire? Driving Rain, actually. Oh, Driving Rain. Okay. Nice. That's cool, man. Yeah, let's keep that going for a couple of minutes here. But yeah, the bus shelter is gone. That's uh, that's tremendous. So we'll talk a little bit more about that at six thirty-seven. But it was a welcome sight, and it's like such such a weird thing that it it's just a bus shack, but it's been such a I, I never. I think actually no, I don't want to say never. I stood in there once. I've always known. Since it first opened, my parents used to say, don't go in there. Shady people go in there. And you know, when they first built it and when they opened Porridge Place, I thought, what a neat idea. Winnipeg needs more of these heated shelters. Big, almost luxurious, dare I use that terminology. But it just very quickly became a magnet for nefarious activities, shall we say, uh, and several times very serious assaults. Yeah. And so the city uh, felt that the best move was to replace it. I think part of the issue was the reflective nature of the glass. You couldn't see what was going on inside necessarily from the street, which is something, a benefit, I guess, in terms of safety, that those glass on all side bus shelters have that we see everywhere else is that you can definitely see what's going on inside, I guess, except when they're frosted up in the winter time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what a setup, actually, a conversation we're going to have at 745. Ebates.ca, we spoke with them a couple of weeks ago about staycation ideas. They reached out to us with another idea here about weddings, because it's wedding season. Summer is always big mm-hmm. for weddings. There's a good chance you're going to a wedding this weekend. And if not this weekend, then some weekend over the summer. And inevitably, you got to spend a fair chunk of change on presentation. The Ebates thing is on gift giving, but 
like, do is presentation only common? In, like, is that most common in Manitoba? That seems to be the consensus that presentation and socials are sort of synonymous with Manitoba. Uh, but I was just at a wedding a couple of weeks ago. There were lots of gifts there as well. Okay. So sometimes on the invitation, it will specify presentation appreciated or some sort of language that indicates. We'll take the money, thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, why don't they just say, give me the money? Give me the cash. Well, hey, according to Ebates.ca, Canadians spend an average of $145 on wedding gifts compared to other holidays like birthdays where the average spend was only $95. So Canadians are spending more money on wedding gifts than any other gift-giving occasions. So we wanted to have a chat about this as we get ready to have that conversation at 745 because I suspect ebates is going to say well hey a great thing you can do is stuff an ebates gift card into the wedding <laughs> card clever so, yeah no, i don't know about gift cards i mean gift cards at christmas is one thing on a birthday gift card for a wedding maybe even a wedding shower might be something that you do but a, a, a gift card in a wedding gift and do you do the presentation how do you make the calculation of what you're giving tristan usually when it comes to wedding gifts i'm very much the sort of guy Tell me what you want. And and I, I, I'm a huge fan of people who have wedding registries where it's a matter of here's a list of stuff that we can that we want, like furniture or um, utensils or whatever it may be. And I so that that's normally what I'll do. I'll normally it'll, I'll just go through that and say, here's about I can't think of the, how much I spent the last time. But twenty dollars. No, no, not twenty dollars. Twenty five dollars at least. <laughs> and um, I'm not heartless, Kelly. I'm just uh, frugal. So usually it'll be a matter of I, that's a joke, by the way. Can I just because sarcasm doesn't always stay, come across stay the radio. With the train of thought. No, no, no. Stay but the fact is, I have spent significant amounts of money on on weddings and that sort of thing. But uh, usually, usually, honestly, just tell me what you want, and I'll go get it. Because I'm I'm terrible. I'm not going to get you a puppy. I'm not going to get you a car. Just whatever. <laughs> A car? Who would puppy. expect you to buy them a car? A I mean, a, a nobody. on the gift registry? or uh, No, it wasn't. But it's just, I know everybody wants a puppy. No, that, that right? grumpy attitude, who would even invite Field Jones? Well, I'm trying to figure out if I should invite Tristan to my next wedding or not. Your so, next wedding? Yeah. Oh, it's a oh joke. no. Yeah. Kelly Moore, how do you make the uh, decision on what to give and, and how you're giving it? Well, I, I would much prefer to go and get something that you put some thought into rather than just a random gift card and that sort of thing. But... You know, if, if that's what someone wants, then that's what someone is going to get. And I, I've always gone with the idea of, uh, you know, about $100. So I, I guess I must be frugal, too. Is that too per person or per couple? Well, that, it, we usually would spend about 100 bucks or so on a wedding gift. So, But it's been a long time. I can't remember the last wedding I went to was in 2016, I believe it was, for our niece, and I, I don't, I can't remember what we spent. It was just a little over hundred bucks, but it was on the registry. We went yep. to, you know, where they were and, and got something they didn't have yet, and it came out to about a hundred and twenty-five bucks with tax or something like that. So is that, that wedding, close? Is that how registries work? Like if you go into a place where there's a registry and they will tell you what's left? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Like an electronic re- registry, right? They they go and they do a pseudo shop. Right. It, it's actually kind of fun because they give you a pricing gun in some places and you go around, yeah. oh, we'll take four of those. Doop, doop, doop. And then they'll take that. Doop. And then they compile the list, and there's a little digital kiosk, <laughs> yeah, and you go yeah. through, and then you go, oh, they don't have this yet, and then you say that this is what it's for, and then it gets taken uh, off the list. Yeah. Now, that now, was real. I really appreciate it. I thought like I was in the store with you with welcome, the price trust. I really enjoyed that. Now, what if, <laughs> do you change the amount 
of your presentation or the generosity factor in your gift, if it says on the invitation, Brett, and I apologize for looking at you at this question. <laughs> well, Reimer, I'm also says, looking at you. Oh, here we go. Uh-oh. If it says cash bar. Absolutely. Because the presentation is to cover the, the cost of your drink, uh, your drinks and your dinner. Don texted saying for wedding presentation, we pay $250. Miss Manners says it should be double what the meal costs. The problem is, like, how do you know? What the meal cost? Uh, they're, they're, most most of most of them are about at what sixty to seventy dollars a plate. I think sounds about right. Yeah. So, okay. So then that it's, it's been a couple of years since I've been to a wedding. I think I had gotten up to like if I brought a guest, I was up to one fifty. So I was going seventy five bucks ahead. But maybe I should be up to at least two hundred now for presentation. But if there's a cash bar situation, then yeah, I would I would. I'd probably back that off. I'd back it up, back it down a little bit for sure. I think geography will allow me to tell this next story. A buddy of mine who was in a wedding party went to go order a drink, and the bartender asked him for five bucks. He goes, "I'm in the wedding party." Yeah, it's five bucks. <laughs> Cash bar? Yeah. So he went back. He went back to the oh, envelopes, no. dug through the envelopes, no. took his envelope. He had put four hundred dollars in the envelope. He took half of it out. Oh, yeah. He wow. was not impressed wow. with the mm. cash bar situation. He didn't even know going into the wedding. No, he didn't know. Oh. This happened in Ontario and about 25 years ago, so I feel comfortable telling the story, and I left names out. Will Reimer, where are you on this? Uh, uh, sorry, on cash bars? Well, whatever. I know when there's a cash bar, you shouldn't walk out with a case of beer. I've been to a wedding where somebody did that, and somebody <laughs> stopped them when they were halfway across a parking lot, and they said, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing with that? Or sorry, it wasn't a cash bar. It was an open bar, yeah. which, which isn't an open invitation to walk away with two bottles of wine or a case of beer or whatever Holy else. And uh, yeah, that wasn't a very good look. Yeah. Um, been, to, been to other weddings where this is kind of funny. There was a couple guys who would regularly bring a goat as a wedding present and they would like trot it out and be like, here's your goat. Or they'd, they'd leave the lead the uh, the bride and groom outside and the goat would be... Uh, on a little chain, chained to a fence or something, and they'd be like, here's your goat, this is yours now. And they'd be like, what are we going to do with this goat? I don't know, it's your goat now. It's yours. <laughs> have fun. Have fun. Uh, yeah, it was like fun. I'm sure they gave them actual money or a gift or something. I hope so. But they would always turn up with this goat. Who did this goat belong to? Was it their I, goat? Oh, I'm not actually sure. That, that detail never came out. I think they just... Uh, they just had it, or they bought it specifically for that, like just farming for community, wedding right? gangs, just for wedding gags. Yes, and exactly. And would they leave yeah. this poor goat just chained up outside for the duration of the party? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, for, in the evening, they'd probably bring it by in the evening for the reception <laughs> or something. And then now it's up to the bride and groom to figure out, like, what do we do with this goat? Do we going to sell this to, or give it to a there, farmer or something? There's a lot of probabilities and hopefullys and likelies in that story. There, Will Reimer. I mean, it's. A little it was disconcerting. A, it's, a, it's a long time ago. That's one of those stories that's probably gone through a few different ears and mouths before oh, okay. it made it to me. Well, I enjoy this version. Still, so. though, the goat. I mean, that that yeah, I wouldn't want to add that kind of a, a gag is one thing, but that would be like genuine stress on your wedding night. <laughs> what are we going to do with a goat? <laughs> I think that was the point. Oh, <laughs> How to the, ruin a wedding you night. You know, just real quick, the cash bar thing, I love that story, Greg, but, but this is something, and I, I think maybe it applies more generally to weddings. I, I've never taken advantage of a cash bar or, or anything like that. I don't usually drink at weddings anyway. But I just think that's their day of happiness. And for you to be a sourpuss to take some money out of the envelope because it was a cash bar, give me a break. I think I, I, I genuinely think that that's um, frankly childish. 
I, I really do because it's a oh, matter it's, of that, no, it's, it's frugal. You, you, no, it's not frugal. That's oh, being callback. But when you're no, no, but I would never have you do been that. in a wedding party, Tristan. Are, are you close enough to anybody in your life that they would include you in your wedding party? There's a, uh, he was there's, a goat once. The, the, <laughs> now we know the story. The grass of the was delicious. Oh, Thank you, Kevin. You got to realize that when you're asked to be in a wedding party, it's not cheap to be in a wedding party. No. You rent the tox and, you know, yeah. you've got all these other obligations, this, that, and the other thing. And on top of it, I could see a cash bar and then going, but by the way, the wedding party? Yeah. Just they're on the house, just yeah. so you know. Yeah. Or mm, at okay. least give your groomsman a heads up, by True. the way, yeah. guys. Yeah. It's a cash I, no. bar. So in the, it, if I was the guy that Greg described, I'd have done the exact same thing. I would have just been mad. Like, you didn't even give me a heads up. It's a cash yeah, bar. That's, yeah, that, that's not fair. That I agree with. But yeah. still, I, whatever. Winnipeg firefighters are increasingly being put in dangerous situations, Brett. This is when they're dispatched to calls that should be handled by police. This from the president of the Firefighters Union. On my desk right now, I have at least 35 different incidents where firefighters have been bitten, kicked, punched, where there was incidents with guns, uh, knives, homemade guns, homemade clubs. United Firefighters of Winnipeg boss Alex Forrest told the union's members in a letter Monday that local police leadership doesn't seem to be taking its concerns seriously and that despite some changes to dispatch protocols, enough isn't being done to keep firefighters safe on the city streets. Forrest told Global News that while he understands police are understaffed and resources are stretched thin, this is not an acceptable approach to dealing with backlogs in the queue of calls for service. Last week, President of the Winnipeg Police Association, Mo Sabrin, told CJOB that 300 calls for service and waiting in the queue has become commonplace for police. Global's Joe Scarpelli has more on this story. We are not police officers. We are not trained for this. Alex Forrest is calling on the firefighters he represents to approach their calls more cautiously. We do not have the equipment, and these are not our calls that we have to go to. So we have asked the police to stop sending us to these calls. He claims calls that should be going to police are going to his unit. Forrest points to an example from last month. A crew was sent to a man-down call. It turned out to be a break-and-enter where the suspect had passed out. They had called police numeral times, but there was no police available. And finally, the police dispatch says, well, you know what, we'll send fire. They're not alone. The union representing paramedics is raising similar concerns. Our paramedics find themselves increasingly having to respond uh, to emergency medical situations, uh, which require police protection for them to provide medical care. The fire chief says there is always concern about first responder safety. He says protocol changes have been made and there's no evidence that police are handing off calls. Will there be ones that uh, uh, that that slip through that maybe uh, were, were not appropriately dispatched? Um, absolutely. Uh, the protocols are not infallible. But Forrest says it's too many slipping through too often. He worries it's just a matter of time before a member is seriously injured or killed. They're using us as a crutch. They're sending firefighters to hold the fort to criminal activities. Winnipeg police did not respond to our request for comment. Joe Scarpelli, Global News. Now, Forrest visited with our own Jeff Courier for a more in-depth conversation yesterday morning. Want to bring some of that to you now. And I just want to make one thing really clear. We have no issue with the frontline police. 
they are understaffed. They're working at incredible levels, and they watch our backs. They do an amazing job doing what they can to protect us. But what's happened is that uh, there's just not enough police resources in this city, and what we're seeing is we're being sent to calls, sometimes for an hour, two hours, that are criminal acts. Uh, we've been sent to calls that are everything from stealing cars, causing disturbance, security guards asking for police, home invasions, uh, etc., and it, it has to stop or else a firefighter is going to be hurt or killed because of this protocol. So what are you suggesting here, Alex? What, what needs to be done? Well, for one thing, what has to be done is that there has to be proper resources put into the system. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not an expert in the criminal field, whether it's more police officers, it's more treatment centers, but what has to be done is you have to stop sending firefighters. We arrive on the scene 80% of the time first because we have such quick response. That is the, the uh, jewel in the crown of our system is that we have the ability to get there quick. They have to stop sending firefighters that they know is not a fire medical related call to known police calls. They have to stop that. Can your chief Lane not place a, a phone call or go have a cup of coffee with police chief Danny Smythe and say this has to stop? We, we, we can't respond to these calls. That's exactly. I had a call into the police chief, and I said, this is happening, we need to do it. And basically they told us, well, if there's an issue, our fire chief have to go over and talk to the police chief. We have now put it on record that if a firefighter is hurt or killed because of this, we believe that the police is violating workplace safety and health. We believe that it's a criminal act because they're knowingly putting workers in danger. And I believe that something's going to occur and we will hold the police accountable. Of course, uh, Alex Forrest speaks uh, loud and clear on behalf of firefighters in this uh, community. Jean-Guy Bourgeois speaks on behalf of paramedics, and he joins us now, head of the uh, spokesperson for the MGEU. He joins us now. Good morning, Jean-Guy. Good morning. We've uh, obviously heard quite extensively from Alex Forrest over the last 24 hours or so, his concern about his members showing up on what, appear to be, and, and what he alleges are crime scenes, not necessarily situations where uh, the traditional service that his members provide is required. Do you share the same concern? Absolutely. Uh, we represent around 350 ambulance-based paramedics in the city of Winnipeg, and when they go into a, a situation to provide emergency medical care to someone in crisis, and, there's, uh, uh, and it happens to be a place where crime or there's a risk of crime, say there's a weapon presence, say that there's a, uh, an unpredictable person on meth. Uh, they rely on the police to do their job safely. And right now with this surge in, in crime, particularly violent crime on Winnipeg streets, uh, they increasingly find themselves in situations uh, where the police resources are not there to support them the, the way that they have been in the past. And that's putting them at, at, at risk. And that's a serious concern for us. I want to bounce a text message off you, Jean-Guy. It's uh, from one of our listeners named Dave, who says, I remember when an old saying was, honor among thieves, and one rule amongst them was to never harm a medic or ambulance person. They are always unarmed and are there to save a life, not run you in. I know that the addicts may or may not fall into the thieves category, but it was always an unwritten rule, just like in the war. Enemies never bombed on purpose a medical station. It hurts me to keep reading about this. I know it will never change as long as the higher-ups keep closing their eyes. 
I could go on and on, but it makes me sad with what is happening right now. What's your reaction to that from Dave? Well, you'd like to think that that's true, but the reality is over the past week, we've received at least five reports of paramedics experiencing violence on the job, and and that's just not acceptable. We need the the city to make sure that the police resources are prioritized for these uh, for these calls. Uh, when paramedics are there, they're saving somebody's life. They're 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 de- helping somebody when they need it most, and and they deserve to be in a position to do that job as safely as possible. And that means the police need to be there. So we need we need the city to provide those resources, and we also need, frankly, the province to deal with this meth crisis. That's the underlying cause of this whole thing. It just seems that 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 we haven't been that the province has been moving quickly enough and aggressively enough to get on it. Sean, do you run into situations where your members are attending a call in ambulance and it's unsafe for them to approach uh, an injured person or someone who's in distress and they have to wait for police to arrive before they can administer any sort of care? The protocols they work under allow for, for them, in fact, require them to make an assessment of the risk of violence. And if the, the assessment is that the risk is too high, then yes, they are to stage and wait for police support. And that does happen and it's increasingly happening uh you know obviously um the information they get when they're dispatched is important but also the information that they acquire themselves when they arrive on the scene and together they they use that information to make an assessment how has this changed over the last couple of years because fentanyl and then the the car fentanyl situation and and uh the issuance of uh of narcan as part of the kit bag for emergency responders in our community that was the big concern i would say you know 24 18 months ago how is how has that changed and as is this meth crisis as we're calling it, accelerated or, or changed uh, how much pressure and stress uh, your members are under? Well, the call volumes speak for themselves. Call volumes uh, are up over the last two years. Uh, also, call volumes for police support are up over the last two years. And then, of course, you saw the figures uh, that the firefighters were talking about, about call diversions. So, so, so yes, it's become much more intense. And uh, that's really what caused us to approach employers earlier this year and say, make sure that you're giving our paramedics uh, all the relevant information in your possession about the scene they're about to go into. You know, are there, are, do we know there are weapons on the scene? Is there a recent history of violence at that particular location? That's the kind of information they need. And we pushed them to do that and they started providing it um, in greater detail. But uh, our members still don't have confidence they're, they're getting all they need. Jean-Guy Bourgeois is the Director of Internal Operations at the Manitoba Government and General Employees Union, a.k.a. the MGEU, joining us live on 680 CJOB, speaking on behalf of paramedics. Jean-Guy, thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Wedding season, of course, is in full swing. Canadians are spending more on luxury wedding gifts than any other gift-giving occasion. So for more on this, let's speak with brand specialist from ebates.ca, Graziella Mitri, joining us live. Once again, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about staycations. Graziella, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? Good, thank you. So how much are Canadians spending on average when it comes to wedding gifts? On average, Canadians are spending $145 on wedding gifts. Now, if we compare this to birthdays, Canadians are spending an average of only $95. So a huge difference between those two occasions. Now, you're only going to get married two or three times so versus a birthday you have every year, right? <laughs> 
100%. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I'm compelled to to make the divorce jokes this morning, because it's a 50-50 thing. But uh, Graziella, you you just got married yourself, right? Correct. I'm going on to my one-year anniversary next month, so still in that newlywed vibe. Well, congratulations on that. And we've been having the discussion not only with regards to gifts, but here in Manitoba, and, and we're uncertain we're pretty sure that it's a phenomenon that's fairly uh, restricted to where we live, but maybe not exclusively. Uh, something called presentation, where guests bring cash, money, or a check mm-hmm. instead of an actual gift. Do we do we know uh, where our line of generosity is there? Um, so in our poll, it was looking at the cost that you spend on gifts. So that takes into account cash and wedding gifts uh, and actual physical gifts as well. So we see a trend with both of them. So in general, taking into account whether they're giving in cash or gifts, it's still an average of 145. Now, is that 145 coming from, say, like, uh, is that per person or is that from a couple? Like if I go to a wedding with my girlfriend, is that $145 from the both of us or is that from each of us? So that's per person, but that's an interesting point. point to bring up because we do see that married Canadians spend more on wedding gifts than single Canadians. So we see married Canadians spending 161 on average per person, while single Canadians spend 121, which I can totally attest for because after we got married, we found ourselves being a lot more generous with wedding gifts because you see exactly what goes into wedding planning and how much the cost is that goes into that. What do, you, do you like when people have a registry? I know that makes it easier. Yes, it definitely makes it easier because you know you're getting a gift for that person that they're not going to return unless they get a double of it, let's say. But you're getting something off of their wish list. So it does make it a little bit easier for the person giving that gift. Now, how does this compare to, like, did you include any comparison to Christmas in this survey? Um, So we looked at everything that has to do with gift shopping. So weddings are considered the second most stressful event for (laughs) gift shopping. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you say that because uh, is there anything more stressful than planning a wedding? So I guess that stress stress is being shared by those attending the wedding as well because there there is a little bit of pressure there if you're buying a gift to, to make sure you present yourself in a certain fashion. Do you think it's a... It's uh, about being generous or being perceived as being generous is the is the big stress there, Graziella. I would say it's a little bit of both. You definitely don't want to be the person that everyone talks about at the wedding about not giving a generous gift, right? And you want your gift to stand out. So especially if you're close to that person, you want them to remember the gift that you gave them. I'm finding this finding a little shocking. Additionally, According to your survey, men spend more on average than women, $168 compared to $123. That's, uh, does that surprise you? It does, but here's my thought of it, and I don't want to make any assumptions, but sometimes women, when they shop for gifts, they tend to shop a little bit early, and they tend to bargain hunt and plan ahead of time what they're going to get. <laughs> Again, not making any assumptions, but I know that some men like to keep gifts a little last minute which could prevent any bargain hunting. So what you're saying is the women spend on average $123, but they might be buying a gift that's worth substantially more than that. Correct. That could be the case. Okay. I think that's a 
not necessarily a safe assumption, but it's a good assumption on your part. Uh, do do we know about gift cards and this idea? Like we've seen such an explosion of gift cards as being popular, not only at birthdays and Christmas time, mm-hmm. and not just for little kids. I know my kids love to get gift cards and they love to get cash, but I've actually seen the phenomenon starting to appear at bridal and baby showers. Are we seeing that trend? At weddings that people are asking for or comfortable with giving and or getting a gift card? Yeah, I don't have those exact that data with me, but I can say from our own wedding, we received some gift cards and we were happy with that as well because then we got to choose what to get. We were registered um, at the Bay and a lot of people got us gift cards from that store instead. Do we know which part of the country is most generous when it comes to wedding gifts? That's a great question. I actually don't have that data, but I do have Canadian spending habits based on age. Um, so under 35, you see uh, Canadian spending an average of $123. And between 35 to 44 is where they're the most generous at $171 on average. And over 45 is $148. So see, you want to get married in that sweet spot. You want to wait a <laughs> yeah. little bit longer, but don't wait too long if you, if right. you want to get the juicy gifts. Exactly. At 35 to 44 seems to be that prime age. <laughs> okay. Well, Graziella Mitri with ebates.ca. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. This is fascinating stuff, and we appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me. We got some text messages earlier, Greg. One person saying, any less than 250 bucks for a presentation, you're a tightwad. Because I was suggesting that I used to do 100 Because it used to be 100 bucks. Like when I was sure. in my early 20s, it was yep. 100 bucks for two people. Uh, because I think the the expectation was that it was about forty to fifty dollars for a plate, but I guess if you're you're paying for your dinner and your drinks, uh, that's when I bumped it up to the trend seemed to be one fifty. But we had a text message from somebody saying that they they provide uh, no less for wedding presentation. We always pay two fifty because it should be double what the meal costs. Uh, another person saying this is interesting. Kathy says. I hate wedding presentation. (laughs) Most couples already had a social to help pay for the wedding, where family and friends are expected to spend a couple of hundred dollars. Guests should never be expected to pay their own way. If you can't afford a big, expensive wedding, don't have one. Kathy with a K, if you want to try and hunt her down and... Give her your feedback on that one. Kathy, I I think you might be in the minority in that belief, but... Maybe silently there are a lot of people going, yeah, Kathy, that's the way I feel too. I appreciate the honesty on that, Kathy, because she kind of makes a point. You have the social to pay for your wedding. Yeah, not everybody, yeah. I think the the social helps pay for the wedding, but it it doesn't entirely pay for it. But still, solid feedback. We learned Monday afternoon on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham that Main Street Project is getting an expansion courtesy of the provincial government. That was revealed when Richard and Julie were talking about the crime severity index numbers and meth on Monday with the Minister of Justice, Cliff Cullen. Here's how that went down. Minister, you you have the power to do something. Well, actually, uh, we just, through Cabinet, just uh, allocated money to the, the Main Street Project. So we're actually going to be expanding that particular facility. So we approved 120 beds of that facility. Uh, so that will allow them to uh, to go ahead with the expansion. Uh, and again, that's a good resource for them. 
and then looking at enhanced treatment facilities at that particular project as well. So we've given money to the Main Street project. Uh, this will allow them to proceed with their uh, the renovations. So we're going to have additional capacity at the Main Street project for, for these types of individuals. Minister, will there be a formal announcement in the days ahead about Main Street or because of the blackout, because of the election, that this has quietly been done? Uh, it's it's been quiet. We, you know, as a government, can't uh, can't make those announcements. But uh, I think well, we just did. We just now. did, Minister. <laughs> I'm sorry. We just did. We just did. So uh, that that's is a positive step in the right direction. All right, 120 bed facility Main Street project. Can you put a dollar figure on that? Well, for us, in terms of operating costs, it's, it's about an extra $400,000. And this is new? This is new today? This is new money? This is just approved by Cabinet and Treasury Board? That is correct. So again, that was on Monday. Yesterday afternoon on the news, Richard and Julie spoke with Main Street Project Executive Director Rick Lees about this funding for a meth detox centre. So actually what it will allow us to do is move forward with our Mitchell uh, Fabric Project. We acquired that building, which is about 36,000 square feet, uh, last October. And we've been working with the federal government's National Housing Co-Investment Fund, which requires uh, sort of some provincial buy-in to expand that project uh, to the 120 beds, uh, expanded uh, shelter facility and uh, expansion into addiction treatment. You heard that clip from the Justice Minister later in that show. We were joined by Wab Canoe, the leader of the NDP, and he said this was only part of what you asked for and what you need. Is that true? Um, it's definitely a start. It's part of it. I think what Minister Cullen was referring to is the operating funding and the expanded funding for that, which is great. Uh, but the capital project, uh, we've also asked for uh, $1.5 million from the province, and, um, and that will support the National Co-Investment Fund, uh, which is the largest investor in the capital renovation. Has that check been signed? Uh, it has not. Um, we do know that the federal government was anxious to hear that the provincial government was going to come forward with the operating money that we needed. Uh, so this is definitely a boost for us and, and hopefully will put us across the finish line uh, with the federal government so that they can move forward with their funding. Rick was later asked by Julie, how is someone who comes in under a meth psychosis different than someone who's drunk? So sure. So first, uh, meth psychosis is only about 2 in 10, so it's not 8 in 10 as some people think. It's not that uh, common. It can be managed with um, uh, clinically with olanzapine, etc. And also, uh, meth uh, tends to get ramped up uh, through aggravated environments. Obviously, people in uniforms and badges and high-structured environments like emergency rooms just are not the right place for people dealing with meth. Um, I'm actually away at the moment visiting different sites in Toronto that uh, provide this type of support. And what's interesting to me is that these are environments that are conducive to the client, where they feel safe, um, their psychosis can be managed, um, and much of the psychosis is brought down uh, by people who understand how to manage that. This is going to save lives. It'll absolutely save lives. Uh, The issues that we're dealing with on the streets today are mental health issues. Addiction is a mental health issue. Uh, It's not particularly a policing issue. I think we've unjustly uh, dumped it on the backs of policing, to be honest with you. And what we need is a a more controlled response uh, that really puts the client uh, feeling like uh, there's some dignity and some support for them with people that clearly understand what they're dealing with.
How soon could it be before these new beds are opened and and you can really provide that environment for people that are experiencing problems when they're when they're on meth? Our construction um, window from at the point at which we you know have the funding announced is about an eight month window. We acquired the building uh, last October first, and at that time we're hopeful that we would have. Uh, obviously announcements sooner than later and had really thought we might even have had something ready by this uh, fall. Obviously, until we have um, all of those announcements in place, um, that's not going to happen. But but I can tell you it's about an eight-month window from sort of the go, you know, the go date. That's Rick Lees. He's executive director at Main Street Project in conversation with our own Richard Kluche and Julie Buckingham from yesterday afternoon talking about uh, the funding from the provincial government that will flow to to help in their detox centre uh, creation. And Brett, Rick said something in there that uh, jumped out at me, and that's this idea that uh, so much of the weight of dealing with this has been put on police. It's also being weighed on and being put on community groups like Main Street Project, like the Bear Clan, and like the public who are encountering more and more suspicious items and and bothersome items in their everyday ongoing life. Yeah, and actually, uh, speaking of the Bear Clan, uh, a buddy of mine who runs a business in the North End, he got to work yesterday morning and found just a big pile of of stuff. It looked like some trash and what have you just out behind his business. He described it looked like somebody had, Jeff Courier was talking earlier about shopping carts uh, Mm -hmm. that homeless people might have taken. It looked like someone tipped over a shopping cart and just left the contents there or emptied a trash can or I don't know what it was. So he went to, to go clean it up and sweep it up and he saw a bunch of needles in this pile. So his first instinct was to call the city to see if they could come clean it up. And the city said, no, it's on private property, so we were not going to do that. They referred him to a private company to do that. And then he just said, kind of, oh, I'll do it myself. And then he thought, no, I'm going to call the Bear Clan. And Bear Clan responded within a couple of hours, came out and cleaned it up. And there were 13 needles in total. So just wanted to give a shout to the Bear Clan for being so quick with that response and for continuing to do all the great work in their community. We have actually put in a request with the city just to find out because this is happening to a lot of us now. We're encountering needles where we're not used to encountering them. Who is up who cleans it up? Is it the city? Is it someone else? Is it you? Are you expected to pick up the dirty needles? I don't want to touch a needle if I find one. We just found one outside of Polo Park. The I was going to say uh, on my holidays, didn't you post something uh, that y- you spotted a needle outside of the station here one morning? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was there's a big generator right beside our, our radio station out here at Polo Park, and there was a needle on the back. It was closed. I couldn't tell if it had been used, but I wasn't about to, t- to pick it up. No, of course not. So, what did you do in that case? Call, I guess. Security and security here at Polo Park would have had their protocols on how to deal with that, I suppose. Yeah, I just uh, I, I told someone who's smarter than me here in the the office. Uh, what, what do That's I? That's a short do, list. Come do, on, man. What to do? And they said they would call the the, the landlord and and they uh, dealt with it somehow. So. I'm not entirely sure how they dealt with it. Well, if you don't have your own private security firm, if you're at a park with one of your kids, what do you do? We hope to get that answer from the city of Winnipeg sooner than later. Who should you be calling? What are the best ways about when you encounter a disposed of and improperly disposed of needle, used or otherwise, what do you do?
Mackling and McGarry McNabb's away for a couple of weeks. Richard Cloutier now sitting in her chair. Richard, when it comes to the city of Winnipeg, another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. We'll tell you here that Braden Smith, again, not a household name, but he's the chief planner with the city of Winnipeg, telling uh, his staff yesterday that he's leaving for a job opportunity back home in British Columbia. Uh, Smith has been here for almost seven years and was one of the people, you know, we talk about, and I'll always say, you know, dragging Winnipeg, kicking and screaming into the 1990s. Well, he was one of those planners that really um, catapulted this city into the modern era when it comes to planning. Uh, We talk about all the infill that's going on, about granny suites, about secondary plans. Now, without getting too technical, uh, take Waverly West, for example. He was one of the people behind the scenes that really wanted to showcase this new neighborhood the size of Brandon in the southwest corner of Winnipeg and making sure everything is done properly, different services, um, you know, the ratio between, you know, residential, commercial and parks and open spaces. He was the driving force for the city of Winnipeg. And, you know, talking with with sources are saying, you know, we're losing so many good people. Now, could this be just at that point where somebody is with an organization for six or seven years, it's time to leave? Or is this, you know, symptomatic of the bigger problems that we're seeing at the city of Winnipeg? You know, his colleagues in the planning department, the inspection side, we've reported on that, that they're down 12 people, all the firings and the people who have left were suspended. We are without a city solicitor right now. The CAO position is open. We lost some of our best traffic engineers to the private sector. Uh, We lost uh, the head of community services a couple of years ago, Clive Whiteman. So we've had a real brain drain at the city of Winnipeg. And it gets me to wonder, this has got to be more than just, you know, that cycle that you see in the city. What is it about this atmosphere, this culture and and it's been hinted at, hasn't it? It has, and that word culture comes up continually, Rich. And when we talk about those that have left, I can't help but feel as though the people that should be leaving aren't, and the people we don't want to leave are. And so what does that say about the culture, and how do we get to the bottom of of that question, and, and who do we ask for answers to well, the question? Well, the key here is going to be who they hire as the next uh, chief administrative officer for the city of Winnipeg. Again, this is all the behind-the-scenes stuff, but this position is so important because we're at a crossroads with the city of Winnipeg as far as who they hire and that signal that's sent. And those people that are used to doing the same old, same old or whether or not there's going to be a good ass-kicking at City Hall. I always think about the uh, PBS drama that they stole from BBC, uh, Yes Minister, and the whole behind-the-scenes yeah, working brave. Of, of, of government and who actually runs the show. I think sometimes we forget who is actually running our city. Well, and in Braden Smith's case, let me just throw one fact out at you. You know, we talk about secondary plans. This is, you know, the neighborhood plan, the, the, the big idea of what's going to go into a neighborhood. In his time, in his almost 17 years, 17 secondary plans were approved. In all the previous time since the city of Winnipeg started doing planning, 20. 
So in a matter of seven years, quite the legacy. We have gone from you know zero to ninety, and we've been doing things right. So hopefully he's you know implanted enough of the the good stuff into that department that that legacy will continue. He's not a born and bred Winnipegger. He's not. He's originally from British Columbia, going home to BC. So I'm not surprised by this. But when you look around, you see what's happening at the city of Winnipeg. The good people are looking for other jobs, and that's too bad. Richard Cloutier joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Rich. And you can learn more from Richard this afternoon from 4 until 7. Just got another text. I left the city of Winnipeg because of the toxic culture, Richard. I'm sorry to hear Braden is leaving. He was wonderful. So many GoFundMe pages these days and tons of worthwhile uh, situations and causes to get behind. But this one has hit me a little bit personally. Uh, it was, I guess, uh, must have been Monday night. And I was scrolling through my Twitter and someone I follow and someone that follows me, she goes by Mama, uh, Mama De Best, Kathy DeMello. And her tweet was this, I never thought I'd become a widow on my 56th birthday, but that's what happened at 2.30 today. Thank you for all the birthday wishes, but it's been a really tough day for us all. Kathy's son and John's son, Danny DeMello, joins us now. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Please accept our condolences on behalf of all of us here at CJOB. Uh, obviously, a, a really tough time. Yeah, he was... Uh... You know, he was a great man. He, uh, you know, put everybody else uh, before himself. And, um, you know, he did everything, you know, for his wife. And, you know, you saw my mom's tweet there. And, um, you know, he was just an amazing man, family first always. And, you know, he was always making people laugh. And, um, you know, him and I were very, very close. We did a lot of stuff together. And, um, you know, he's my inspiration, my role model, my my purpose in life. And, um, yeah, it's just an all-around amazing man. So- I, uh, I, can't, I can't say it enough. Yeah, social media can be an unsocial place, but but your mom has always been super positive on Twitter. Big Jets fan, and of course a huge Blue Bombers fan as well. Was your dad big into the sports, or did uh, your mom? Does your mom uh, uh, have the uh, crown as the bigger sports fan? No, yeah, my dad was uh, definitely a diehard sports fan. You know, I played sports my whole life, and uh, you know he made his way out to every single trip that I uh, I played semi-professional. Um, you know, he never missed one trip. He always wanted to watch me play, and never wanted to miss. Uh, one moment, um, you know, he loved to, uh, you know, watch the Jets and, and, you know, bug my mom about the Bombers whenever they would win or lose. And, um, you know, it was always a nice, uh, friendly competition in sports, um, but definitely a diehard sports fan as well. Uh, what kind of places did he, did you have to go? Yeah, he, uh, he came all across the States with me, you know, California, you know, Iowa, Thunder Bay, um, Chicago, Kansas City, you know, across, I can keep on going, but. Um, you know, he went everywhere, um, no matter where it was, he would always make the effort to fly out and, um, you know, be there for support. And, um, yeah, it was one of his favorite things to do, you know, watching me play was always a bright light for him. When are you going to celebrate your dad's life? What are the plans and what can you share with us? Yeah, we got the, uh, funeral Monday morning at 11 a.m. Um, so we're just getting all this stuff in order right now, you know, building a nice, uh, tribute and, you know, trying to get as many people, um, reconnected with him that knew him. Um, you know, he touched the lives of multiple people and, um, you know, it's going to be an amazing celebration of life on Monday and, um, we're looking forward to it. Can you tell us where it is? Or... Yeah, it's at uh, Mosaic Funeral Home on Inkster and Keyway. 
All right, Danny DeMello joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to tell us about this. And uh, once again, our condolences for you and your family. No, I thank you very much for, for coming on, and I appreciate you guys listening. And, uh, yeah, just I, I really appreciate it. It was very nice of you to reach out. It's Mackling and McGarry. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. We've been telling you the last couple of days, 20 years since the 1999 Pan Am Games. Right here in Winnipeg. Now, looking at the uh, this day in the Pan Am Games history, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday was the first day. July 23rd was the first day of competition. Looking back at July 24th, 1999, at Birds Hill Park, just so a couple of examples of things that happened. At Birds Hill Park, former Army Captain Sharon Donnelly of Ottawa won the women's triathlon. At the Winnipeg Arena, Canadian women's gymnastics took home the gold in the artistic team competition with 15-year-old Michelle Conway of Toronto clinching first place with a score of 9.83 on the balance beam. And at Pan Am Pool, the Canadian men's water polo team won a heart-stopping 10-9 decision over Argentina as Winnipeg's Daryl Bourne scored his second goal of the game with just 15 seconds to play and a crowd of somewhere between 30 to 50,000 turned out for the first free concert at the Forks to see the headline act, Blue Rodeo. Wow. Good memories. Uh, The cultural and concert events were uh, something that was available to everybody. So, uh, you know, I didn't know too many people that didn't at least participate in those at least once. But the sport highlight of these games for me was the men's beach volleyball competition. Condren Leidemann and Jody Holden took home the gold medal representing Team Canada. And we have one half of that team joining us now. Conrad Leidemann joining us from Toronto. Good morning, Conrad. Good morning. How are you? Doing really well. Great to connect with you again. It's been almost 20 years since I connected with you last. I bumped into you in a, we'll, we'll, we'll say, a, a, an establishment that serves food and, and, and drink in Vancouver. <laughs> and you were super kind when I relayed to you my experience at Pan Am Games. We'll talk about that if we have time. But just uh, congratulations, first and foremost, on being inducted along with Jody into the Volleyball Hall of Fame. Uh, an accomplishment all on its own, but at the top of your personal accomplishments and accomplishments at a team, where, where does the gold medal at Pan Am games here in Winnipeg rank for you? Well, when you reached out and said, Hey, would you like to talk about the Pan Am games? I was like, boom. All right. This is awesome. And I can't believe it's been 20 years, but yeah, like that is definitely one of our highlights and it set us up going to the Olympics in Sydney, Australia. And that's why we wanted to go is get that multi experience uh, multi-sport experience under our belts before we went to the Olympics and had to perform on the world stage. How was it? How did it? What was the difference in performing at, at the Pan Am Games here in Winnipeg versus a larger event like the Olympics? Well, <laughs> you guys did a great job. First off, it was just an awesome experience playing in. Well, I, I know it's not there anymore, but the old Blue Bomber Stadium that was just amazing. Um, but yeah, like when. You know, at the Pan Am Games, there's 42 countries. And then when you go to the Olympics, there's like around 200 countries competing. So it is a much bigger event, but uh, it was huge for us just to be around the other athletes. Because when we compete on the world tour around, we just go and play beach volleyball and then move from country to country. So we wanted that experience. That's why we wanted, really wanted to come to compete in Winnipeg. 
Now, those games, the both the men's and women's games of beach volleyball, it was difficult to get tickets for any round. They were typically sold right out, about 8,000 seats available for each match, if, if memory serves me correctly. But that gold medal match, that rivaled anything we'd seen in Winnipeg on the hockey ice or the football field. The energy in the old Winnipeg Stadium was absolutely incredible. Just to just describe the home court advantage, Advantage he had not only in the final, but I think maybe the bigger match, uh, Conrad, was was the semifinal because if yeah. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you, you beat the at the time world champion Brazilian team uh, only to face another Brazilian team in the gold medal match. Exactly. So it actually went back to the quarters. We had to to beat a very good Mexican team. It was a very tight match. So and it's single a limb. So we got past the Mexicans, and then we were on to play the world champions from Brazil, Franco Roberto, who are like legends. So that was a really tough draw and we snuck by them. And then we had to take on actually the number one Brazilian team. So (laughs) the Brazilian team that we played actually on in their local, like their national tour wins that like they, they were the number one Brazilian team, but they don't like to travel. I don't know if you guys knew that. So they wouldn't travel on the world tour, but they were the number one Brazilian team. So we had two extremely tough matches and well, if you guys, well, I know you guys were there and it was just awesome. And uh, you know, the energy and the crowd getting behind us and it was so close. And we actually had one of our plays was a CNN uh, play of the day. So it was pretty cool. One of the crazy rallies that we had throughout the match. It was, uh, I, I still get chills just thinking about it. So I can only imagine what it's like for you, Conrad. I mean, you have to stay in the moment and you have to stay focused, but there was clearly a synergy between, not only between you and Jody, because that, that's imperative in beach volleyball, but with the crowd, you really soaked it up. And, and uh, that was a highlight as well. Just You could tell uh, that, that both of you appreciated the support. Well, absolutely. And, you know, there there was a lot of pressure on the Brazilians because they were favored to win the gold. It's like our men's hockey team going and they're they're expected to win gold. The Brazilians were expected to win gold. And, well, obviously we're a good team and we match up well against both of those teams. And uh, we just performed on that day and definitely had a third person on the court. And that was all the fans and walking down in Ottawa or wherever, and some people come up to me, yeah, I was at that game, the Pan Am game. So, I, you know, just I'll, I'll make time for anybody who wants to talk about that match because that's definitely a highlight in my in my career. Well, then I will relay the experience that I had one-on-one with you in Vancouver about four months after, and we were both yeah. in a place called Fiasco's, and Fiasco's. I recognized yeah. you right away. And I, <laughs> I did the fanboy thing, and you ran out to your car, and you brought me a T-shirt, your Speedo T-shirt, with your name on the back. You autographed it for me, and uh, it's still... In the archives, Conrad, it's it's a cherished uh, possession of mine. So thanks for the memory, thanks for the uh, the merch and and the uh, and and the lo- everlasting uh, tribute that, that that'll serve and and memory for me. But what are you up to now? Because you're working to uh, uh, pay it back a little bit. You're working with uh, a group called Can Fund. Yeah. So my wife and I started a charity called Canadian Athletes Now Fund or Can Fund. We've raised over forty million dollars to date, and we fund all of our top athletes representing Canada on the world stage. So literally since two thousand and three, so to the Athens Games, we've supported eighty percent of the Olympic team, 
And yesterday we had a huge announcement. We actually had Eric and Visma Sprott uh, offer a matching program of $3 million. So every dollar that's donated, they will match it dollar for dollar up to $3 million. It's the largest personal donation in Canadian sport history. So it's a huge thing for us, and uh, but we got lots of athletes. We had over 900 athletes apply, and so we're trying to help so many, like the Paralympic athletes, the able-bodied athletes that are representing Canada on the world stage, and that's what I'm up to right now. So we're we're focused on helping the athletes, obviously, go into Tokyo because the games are one year. They start in one year today. So all the athletes that are shooting for the games. Um, and I don't know if you know how good our women's beach teams are, but at the start of the season, they were ranked one and two in the world, uh, our beach teams. not not like I always joke that we're like the Jamaican bobsled team, but reversed. <laughs> um, but our women's team actually just won the world championships. And by doing that, they guaranteed their spot to the Olympics next year already. So it is huge. We've got really good beach men's teams, really good beach women's teams. Um, uh, we actually just helped Skylar Park, who is from Winnipeg. She's a Taekwondo athlete, and she's shooting for Tokyo. And we've helped uh, Desiree Scott and Sammy Joe Small and all the athletes in, in Winnipeg that are representing Canada. And so it's just it's great transition for me because I'm still able to help lots of athletes on uh, trying to obviously go to the Olympics or go to the world championships and win medals for Canada. When you were competing for Canada, did you rely on donations like this? Well, to, to be honest, my number one supporter were kids across Canada. So I actually ended up going into over 500 schools, challenging the school teams one on six, or if I was with Jody, two on six, and we take on the boys team, the girls team, and then the teachers one on six or two on six. And then the kids would pay $1 to come in. And then that went to pay our coach, our travel, because uh, we had to pay our coach 4000 a month at the time, pay his airfare, his hotel, his food. Plus, we had to get to those, the Olympic qualifying tournaments. So it was a huge, uh, uh, literally talked to over 200,000 kids over a 10-year period. And almost all of them got to hold that gold medal from the Pan Am games. I still have it. It's a little bit dinged up and, uh, but it goes back to that Winnipeg gold medal and allowing us to go into schools, share our story. Um, and, uh, again, I get lots of older athletes coming up. Hey, I remember you came into my school and, and now they're actually on the national team. So it's really, really cool to see you know what we've done over the years and being able to give back somewhat conrad uh and uh jody was going to try and join us but he's uh up in lake country in ontario and and his cell phone coverage a little spotty so obviously we did not connect with him today but please uh send our regards to jody uh so many people here in winnipeg remember that match so fondly (laughs) and uh thanks so much for making time for us today and what you're continuing to do for canadian olympic athletes it's it's commendable uh appreciate it very much Thanks for your time. Anytime you guys want to talk about the gold medal game, I'm here for you 24-7. Conrad Lineman. We love everybody here there in Winnipeg. Well, we love you too, Conrad. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us this morning. Great memories from the 1999 Pan Am Games, and we'll have much more memories throughout the next couple of weeks here on 680 CJOB. 
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.